How much will driving an EV reduce my carbon footprint? How long would I have to drive an EV to balance out the carbon load it takes to build? What kind of EV is the most sustainable to drive these days? I'm Tara Jean Stevens, and this is Road to Electric, an original podcast powered by Mazda. I'm on a journey to separate the fact from fiction when it comes to hybrid and electric vehicles. And today, we're talking about sustainability. You hear that, kids? <laughs> They're 11 and 14, and sustainability and the environment and all that kind of stuff is the kind of things they're talking about when we sit around the dinner table talking about maybe getting an electric vehicle. And we're not alone. The Mobility Consumer Index, released by the consulting firm EY last year, reported that concern for the environment is a huge motivator for folks making the switch or thinking about making the switch to driving an EV. I think the thing that pushed us over was when the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, asked the first world, and that includes Canada, if you use a car and you can, make it an electric car. Anne Rainey lives in King Township, Ontario, and environmental concerns always play a role in her decision to drive from A to B. The priority should always be living in walkable distance from work and school and groceries and such. But where she lives, like most Canadians, at this point, she does have to rely on a car to get around. It is the primary mode of transportation. Unfortunately, we do not have public transit and we have people racing through the countryside too fast for safe for the rest of us to walk along the road. We drive, unfortunately, most places, try to share rides we are a two-car family, my husband and I. When I got this electric secondhand, which is awesome, he went out of his way to drive it also. So we kind of seemed a one-car family for a while, because when you have an electric, everyone wants to drive that one. In fact, Anne's husband liked driving her EV so much that... He ended up trading in the old car for a brand-new EV. Although Anne believes a larger shift is ultimately needed, she feels pretty good about her family's shift to driving EVs. EVs are definitely part of the solution, and because we are getting at this so late, anything we can do in the big polluting worlds that reduces emissions now has to be done. So we know that a lot of people are making the switch to hybrids or EVs out of this concern for the environment. But what does the science actually say about how effective EVs are at reducing emissions? You know that adage about the month of March, in like a lion, out like a lamb? That kind of applies to EVs and emissions. Because on the assembly line, when the EV is being built, that's when the car emits its heaviest carbon load. It takes a lot of resources to put together the batteries that power hybrid or electric vehicles. But once the car is complete and, you know, out driving on the road, its carbon load drops significantly. And it turns out that it's not just true for a small, compact sedan. This is also true for larger vehicles like SUVs and pickup trucks. Parth Vaishnav is an assistant professor with the Center for Sustainable Systems at the University of Michigan. And he's the co-author of a study that looked into the real numbers around EVs and carbon emissions. So before we get into your study, I want to geek out on your EV life. I know you're a family man. Tell me about your switch to EV and why you made that change. 
Well, we just found an EV that we liked. We knew that over the lifetime of the EV, it was going to have a lower environmental footprint, substantially cheaper to run than a gasoline car. And another aspect of it was that we do have power outages here in Michigan, and I wanted to use the EV battery to provide backup power to run the fridge. I've got young kids, and so, you know, to keep the milk cold or the formula, if you have a long-duration outage, becomes a little bit of a challenge. And the EV actually has helped us do that a couple of times. So, Parth, let's get into your study on emissions and start with the manufacturing process. What's the difference between EVs and internal combustion vehicles at this initial stage? Like, how do EVs actually stack up? So... The manufacturing emissions associated with electric vehicles are roughly two times those of their corresponding internal combustion engines if you compare a pickup to a pickup and a SUV to an SUV. So yeah, that's that's the magnitude of the head start. But it has to be said that the vast majority of the emissions associated with a vehicle occur during the use phase, especially since vehicles now last a really long time. And because of that, uh, what we found was that EVs across the different categories caught up with internal combustion engines in a couple of years. So we found that it was about 20, 25,000 miles, which is what a typical family in the United States drives in two years. So Parth, EVs produce more emissions than ICE vehicles in the manufacturing phase. I know that. But ICE vehicles, on the other side, produce most of their emissions in their use phase, whereas EVs produce very few. But how much of a reduction do you think we can actually achieve here? Like, I've heard about this idea of a zero-emission car. Do you think there's ever going to be a possibility? If you look at it from that perspective, where eventually we need to get to a global net zero, then yes, of course, a zero-emissions car is not just possible, but necessary. In the nearer term, it is kind of hard to say. Around 20 or 30% of the emissions associated with vehicle production come from electricity use. And the easiest sector to sort of fully decarbonize is the electricity sector. So you could potentially reduce the emissions from vehicle production by decarbonizing the electricity sector. And that would bring the upfront emissions down by 30% or so. And then during the use phase, the vast majority of the emissions associated with electricity vehicles stem from the emissions that you have from generating electricity to energize them. And if you got to a net zero power sector, those emissions would very quickly go down to zero. The short answer to your question is that if you add up the manufacturing and use phase, you could get to a vehicle that over its lifetime is not at zero, but really very close to zero provided you rapidly decarbonize the electricity grid. Parth, your study looked, we know, at EV production and usage across the U.S. So is there any reason to assume that the picture is different here in Canada? Yeah, I actually think the greenhouse gas reduction that you would get from EV adoption in Canada is greater than in the United States, because at least in Ontario and British Columbia, you have really clean electricity grids that rely on hydroelectricity and nuclear power. So you would actually have a pretty sharp reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. And another aspect of it, which we should all care about, is, you know, vehicles are responsible for other pollutants like sulfur dioxide and oxides of nitrogen, which actually affect our health in the short term. And if you have a really clean electricity grid, 
and you're using electric vehicles, you actually sharply reduce emissions of those pollutants, which also has health benefits. And so Canada would do really well on both of those counts if it adopted electric vehicles in a big way. Parth Vaishnav is an assistant professor with the Center for Sustainable Systems at the University of Michigan. As we've been hearing, there are a lot of pieces that come into play when we talk about sustainability and EVs. And while researchers have confirmed, yes, they have, that driving EVs can substantially lower emissions, there's also the issue of sustainability when it comes to the making of the cars themselves. So we wanted to find out how automakers are thinking about and approaching this challenge. Andrew Bardwell is a national manager with Mazda Canada. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me. So let's kick it off with how are automakers thinking about sustainability when it comes to building new EVs? The harsh reality is I think a lot of them aren't. And I think it's sort of new technology, same old behaviors. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I think historically, the industry has been fueled by enthusiasts and by bragging rights. So pickup trucks have never been able to tow more or carry more. Cars have never had more power than they do currently. And whatever we thought was the glory days of the muscle car in the 60s, you know, where 500 horsepower used to sound like a lot, now nobody gets out of bed unless it's over 1,000. And unfortunately, that same bigger is better mentality has infected the whole EV conversation. And so the IIHS just updated their facilities so that they could crash test vehicles that weigh more than 10,000 pounds. My first car weighed 1,800 pounds. The simple reality is batteries have pound per pound, 120th the energy of gasoline. And so to put that into perspective, I have driven a Mazda 3 1,000 kilometers with roughly 50 liters of gasoline, we're about 75 pounds. Gasoline weighs about a pound and a half a liter. For me to do that with an electric vehicle, I'd need a battery that's over a thousand pounds. And so with where we are today in terms of battery energy density, we should be focusing on small urban vehicles. Our MX-30 has a battery that's a third of the size of a lot of its competitors. And as a result, it has a third of the range. If you're just doing short urban chores, you know, running around, picking up groceries, shuttling kids to and from activities, you don't need extended range. With where we are today in terms of battery technology and energy density, my personal position is the right place for EVs is short haul urban vehicles. But I think the entire industry has sort of hijacked the EV conversation and very few of them are focused on small, light, simple vehicles that take advantage of where we are today in terms of battery technology. What is the biggest challenge that automakers are facing when it comes to building EVs in a sustainable way? What are they coming up against? Consumer behavior. And and so I'll give you an example. My wife's very focused on healthy eating, which means kale has a prominent place in our fridge. And you think, you know, you go to a lot of restaurants and they'll have, they want to add kale because they want to attract the consumer who's more conscious of what they eat. And so you walk into a restaurant and they're serving battered, deep fried kale with nacho cheese sauce. And you're thinking, you kind of miss the point. And I was going to say yum. <laughs> oh, I, but that's the thing. Everybody wants yum. And cars are no different. People want faster cars that are bigger, more comfortable, more luxurious with more technology. And the simple reality is with the technology we have available to us today, if you're really trying to serve the environment, what you need are small, simple, light electric vehicles with batteries that aren't huge. And if you look at what we did with MX30, that was our goal. We very intentionally said, 
we don't believe right now that batteries can replace gasoline pound per pound. They can't. The energy density isn't there. So if you're going to have a vehicle and it's going to be an EV, it's going to be the second or third vehicle in your driveway. So if I'm imagining a sustainable electric vehicle, there must be some elements in it that are still detracting from, you know, it being 100% sustainable. What are some of those things? It's complicated. The first thing I would say is the cost of real estate. You might think, well, what does that have to do with sustainability? If you look at the GTA, if you look at Toronto as an example, the average cost of a home in the GTA, people who work in the city are frequently commuting from 60 kilometers away to have a home that's affordable. So if they're going to be in traffic for 60 kilometers each day going to work, they want something that's comfortable, refined, powerful, large and safe. And that flies in the face of an EV because range then becomes an issue and also cost. Large batteries cost money. The reality is today's EV market wouldn't exist without government intervention and government incentives. The provinces that have the greatest take rate for electric vehicles are the provinces that have the greatest government spend on incentives. So the question is, how do you encourage manufacturers or companies to support work from home, right? As an example, with Mazda, I don't go into the office anymore. I was driving 65 kilometers each way. Just by changing that, I eliminated 130 kilometers a day of driving. And so before we even have the conversation about the role of the EV in the environment, you have to say, how do we change behaviors? Number one. Number two, how do you get people to want to eat kale? Right? A small group of people will say, I'm going to give up french fries, I'm going to give up potato chips, and I'm going to eat kale and I'm going to make my own salad dressing. But it's not the vast majority of consumers. And so how do you get people to want something small and simple? People have forgotten the joy of a lightweight vehicle that's simple and responsive and doesn't require a lot of effort to drive and doesn't take up a lot of space and can stop and turn and, and maneuver in a way that a big car simply can't. So again, a lot of different factors, but they all play a role in what people want and what they're willing to compromise on. So I think you can really blow the roof off this next question for me. So how can or how should, I guess, auto manufacturers be building EVs to maximize sustainability? Every car enthusiast, if you somebody who's honestly a car enthusiast, what they want is faster, better, more entertaining cars to drive that are more reliable and, heck, more affordable and with lower cost of ownership. I'm no different than anybody else. I have kids and a mortgage, and in some way, I've got to make it all fit. From a manufacturer perspective, I think you have to ask yourself, how do I get the most bang for the buck? And I, I think electrification goes beyond pure EVs. There are mild hybrids, there are hybrids, and there are plug-in hybrids. So there's very much a scale. And so to give you an example, our mild hybrid CX-90 has a battery that's one third of a kilowatt hour. And that might not mean anything to you, but the battery in some large EVs are more than 100 kilowatt hours or the 300 times the size of the battery in our mild hybrid. And so there's weight and cost associated with that. Even our plug-in hybrid CX-90 has a battery that's less than 20 kilowatt hours. So less than a fifth of the size of batteries in a pure EV. So I think a lot of manufacturers, and we're not the only manufacturer having this conversation. Toyota, as an example, I tip my hat to them. They have been very vocal in the notion that a pure EV isn't necessarily the best pure play for the environment. Look at the Prius. And you think with a battery that's maybe two kilowatt hours, right, as a, as a hybrid in an urban environment, it does an extraordinary job. And for most consumers, you know, maybe 50% of the time, it drives as an EV. But then if they have to drive further, it's a hybrid. So you have the benefit of an internal combustion engine. Sustainability, if we're going to have the conversation about sustainability, we have to talk about blended technologies. I don't think it's going to be any one technology that solves the issue. 
And especially when you look at it from a cost of ownership and cost of acquisition perspective. I think if you look at the cost, it used to be your mortgage was three times your annual salary. If you made $100,000, you bought a house that was $300,000. Where are you going to buy a house in Toronto for $300,000? And so when you have households that are barely making their mortgage payments, these $100,000 EVs aren't the answer. And so we have to look at it and say, how do we meet the needs of, of an audience um, that wants EVs, but can't afford the current price tag associated with pure EVs? One final question for you. So EVs are still pretty new and we're just starting to enter this period where the life cycle of an EV is being reached. So I, I, I think that's kind of exciting. But what is happening in terms of battery recycling and other initiatives that can also impact sustainability? This one is a bit of a red herring, if you want my honest opinion. I think, again, when the Prius first came out 20 years ago, everybody talked about, oh my goodness, what are we going to do with the batteries when the vehicles reach their end of life? The, the reality is, even 10 years on, a lot of these batteries retain 70% of their charge capacity. They still do a great job. But there's a more interesting conversation to be had around sustainability. And that is, right now, if you want to make toast in the morning, and yeah, you turn your toaster on, somebody at a power plant has to turn the volume up a bit. We don't store electricity. And so on a Monday morning in the summer, on a hot August day, when all of the factories turn their lights on at six in the morning on Monday, and everybody turns on the air conditioning, you might have a draw, and I'll make a number up, of three terawatts. And so you have to capacitize the infrastructure to produce enough electricity to meet that demand at Monday morning, even though on a Sunday night, it'll be less than a tenth of that. And so all of a sudden you take... If you live in a world where everybody drives an EV and you have a dynamic grid, it means all of a sudden, at peak hours on Monday morning, Ontario Hydro could pull electricity from my battery, meet that peak demand without building a new power plant, and then put it back on Monday afternoon when the demand settles down. And all of a sudden, you start to have a dynamic grid in a way that we don't right now, so that you can redistribute load on, on the infrastructure. And so I do, I think EVs don't exist in isolation. They're part of a larger conversation about how do we get more sophisticated with, with meeting the needs of these issues. Building a new power plant is a billion-dollar, 10-year project. And, and we do it because we worry about peak demand on a Monday morning. What if I could meet peak demand by having a dynamic grid that allowed me to pull from the vehicles that are plugged in and then put back in afterwards? And all of a sudden, this becomes a more interesting conversation. And then again, I think, you know, I'm looking at manufacturers buying shares in Tesla because they want access to Tesla's charging grid. And you think, why wouldn't you make the charging grid part of a national incentive? Rather than give everybody $14,000 to buy an electric car, why don't you have government take the lead on ensuring you have a national infrastructure so that I can drive from coast to coast in any reasonable EV with a state-of-the-art infrastructure that, that it supports and encourages people to embrace electrification. Andrew Bardwell is a national manager with Mazda Canada. Andrew is hinting at a massive shift in thinking around what EVs might mean for the future of our world. And he's not the only one. Remember Tom Standage? I spoke to him a few episodes ago. He's a historian who has written a book on the history of the electric car, but he's also very interested in the future of the electric car, and especially in its potential to transform how we power our world. 
So road transport in total is only about 20% of global emissions and light vehicles, in other words, cars and light trucks, is only about half of that. So even if I could wave a magic wand now and turn all the cars in the world to electric cars, you would only solve about a tenth of the climate change problem. But cars can help in another way, which is that they can help with decarbonizing the grid. So if you think about this, you know, 15 years ago, people started putting solar panels on their houses. And when you've got more sunshine coming in and producing more energy than you actually need in your house, you can send the excess energy into the grid and you can actually sell the excess energy into the grid. And this has been possible in many parts of the world for some time. And then what people started to do is add batteries. So the excess power that your solar panels are producing goes into a battery, means that you know you can run your house in the evening on solar power that you collected during the day. So what if you could use your car as that battery? So you plug your car in, and yes, you can charge your car from the solar panels, but you can also dump energy into the battery. And then at night, you know, if you're if you suddenly need to run an appliance, you could borrow some energy from your car, and then you top it up again the next day when the sun comes out. So you start to look at the battery in your car as part of the power infrastructure of your house. And we are starting to see people do this in in parts of the world that are subject to hurricanes and things like that. If you have this ability to essentially take energy out of the car battery and bring it back into the house, you can use your car as a backup battery because you're going to have a big battery in your car, probably bigger than you have in your house. And then the question becomes, well, can you do this back onto the grid? So we're starting to see in some parts of the world something called a virtual power station. And this is where, imagine you've got a neighbourhood where you've got a lot of solar power and all of those houses have got solar panels and they've got batteries. And imagine that there is then a surge in the middle of the day and because it's really, really hot and lots of people have turned on their air conditioners. What then happens is um, if you have all the software set up, you can use this smart grid technology where you take energy out of the batteries in those houses and you, you basically borrow it and you bring it into the grid and you use it to power the air conditioners. And it allows you to essentially grab hold of that energy in batteries sprinkled across a particular neighborhood uh, at times of peak demand. And that means you don't need so many power stations to serve that neighborhood because on those rare occasions when you need that peak power, you can just help yourself to that energy. And electric cars would take this to an even higher level where if you've got lots of electric cars plugged into the grid and they're all charging and, you know, they're all at various states of charge, and then suddenly there's a big surge because, you know, there's a heat wave or something and everyone's turned on their air conditioners, then you can take energy out of those electric cars, which collectively are an enormous amount of storage. And one of the big challenges with decarbonizing the grid is balancing the fact that Renewable energy sources like wind and solar are intermittent, and so you don't always get the energy when you need it, and the answer to that is storage, but storage is expensive. So what if you just use the electric cars that are plugged into the grid, most of which are just sitting there charging and not being used, some of them will be fully charged and are just sitting there doing nothing. If you could use the energy in those batteries, if you could use those batteries as basically an extension of grid storage, then that suddenly means that you've got a much more resilient grid and a much more flexible grid. But I think that's where we're headed, that we're going to start seeing electric vehicles as energy storage units as well as transport devices. Andrew Bardwell agrees that this conversation around how EVs might transform our world is just beginning. I envy the generation that's coming to the industry today because I think we will see a profound transformation of how we think about the automobile and its role in society. And we've only begun to scratch the surface on how all the pieces fit together and how we change the idea of what is what is transportation, what's the role of the automobile, and, and how do we power it? And how does that connect to everything else? There are a lot of pieces that need to fit together. 
When I first began this journey of learning about hybrids and EVs, I really had no idea that it would lead us to so many huge ideas about the way, ultimately, these things are going to transform the world. And honestly, it's pretty exciting to think about, isn't it? I was just, you know, having a lot of thoughts about how driving an EV was one tiny step I could take to help reduce my carbon footprint. But the potential for EVs beyond simple transportation is really astounding. Plus, everyone I've spoke to keeps talking about how much fun they have driving their EVs. It's just getting, oh, it's just getting more and more tempting. Don't tell my kids. <laughs> I'm Tara Jean Stevens. Thanks for listening to Road to Electric, an original podcast powered by Mazda. This is our last episode, and I have loved having you along for the ride. I hope we've answered some of your questions about MHEVs, PHEVs, BEVs, and everything in between. And whether you're about to make the switch or maybe sticking with your ICE vehicle for now, safe travels. The thoughts, opinions, and views expressed in this podcast are solely that of the guests and do not represent the thoughts, opinions, and views of Mazda Canada. The material and information presented in this podcast is for general information purposes only.